This week on Excelsior Journeys, my guest is actor Alex Hyde-White. With over 120 credits to his name, Alex has been on the big screen, on the small screen, and his voice is one of the more prominent voices that you hear in audiobooks as the owner of Punch Audio. He's got a lot of great experiences to share with us, including the release of his memoirs in the volume. It is my honor to have Alex here. I can't wait for you to hear what he's got to say. JLD, do the honors. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire. And you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. So would you say that that's kind of like the lightning bolt moment for And that's you, what the I moment? taught myself how to draw, was actually the Little Mermaid. Drawing stills Line of Ariel. I've got better things to do tonight than so die. jumped out of his chair and said, who the F is this? I remember walking out of the theater with and saying, I'm going to write Halloween I'm sex. rather impressed with your research. Rarely do people ask me about children in the corner. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just do it. You know, throw yeah. some spaghetti yeah. against the wall. See this if it is sticks. George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. This is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for tuning in for over 170 episodes. And I really hope you keep tuning in when Excelsior Journeys and nine other shows come together as the Once Upon a Podcast Network starting January 1st, 2023. These shows are focused on entertaining, celebrating, inspiring, motivating, and rejuvenating creatives of all kinds. And I'm so excited for you to hear it all at the beginning of next year. When an opportunity comes along for you to meet someone whose work you admire and that work is in various fields to connect with you in every way, you take that opportunity. And I'm proud to say that this week's episode is that opportunity for me. I have known of Alex Hyde-White and his work for over 30 years. I have seen him on both the big and small screen. He's worked with Steven Spielberg, Gary Marshall, Jordan Peele, and so many others. He has starred in, in my own opinion, one of the more underrated films of the 1980s, 1989's The Phantom of the Opera. He was the first man to bring the character of Reed Richards to live action as part of 1994's The Fantastic Four. And now, as the owner of Punch Audio, his work with Amazon and Audible have resulted in a slate of audiobooks that keeps growing to this day. Alex has recently released his memoir entitled In the Volume, which tells all about his various journeys and more. And I'm truly honored to have him here to talk about it. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Mr. Alex Hyde-White. Alex, how are you, sir? George, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for being here. Really, really appreciate it. I actually just gotten my my hands on both the the Kindle version and the audiobook version of In the Volume. So I'm really, really excited to to dive into both of them. Can you tell us a little bit about In the Volume and how the how it's been having it released? Because it just came out very recently, correct? Yeah, it came out just the end of October, about a couple of months ago. I mean, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I think it, I think it dropped. The audiobook, I think, dropped like October 20th or something. So brand new. You know, I had originally mm-hmm. hoped to get it out last summer when Nope mm-hmm. was going to come out. But then we uh, we made a bit of a move. We loaded up the truck and drove out to Pensacola, Florida over Easter time, where I got a little rented townhome for a couple of years so my wife could be near her family. And, and our son is finishing his senior year at Auburn. So you know, it took me a, a, a little while just to get into the more relaxed swing of things in the Florida panhandle, and I was able to, to really get back up to speed. And I finished the book May the 12th, which was my wife's birthday, and it also happened to be the day in 1903 that my father was born. And so it was a nice 
nice, nice sort of self. Just it was a deadline that meant something to me. So May 12th is when I finished the book. And it was sort of in revisions and back and forth with the publisher. We finally got it Excellent. out and it dropped in the uh, middle of September. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I've seen different clips of of you on social media where you've been going to different places and you recently went to New York. Is that correct? Yeah. And now this is an, it's very, brand new. You know, it's it kind of took me by surprise, George, because and it shouldn't have because I went through this twice before, once when I made a couple of independent movies. You sort of make them, and then you kind of think, okay. <laughs> and, and then, actually, the work starts. You have to go on the road to festivals and personal appearances and oh, whatnot. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it goes back to, you know, a couple of the episodes of the chapters that I write about is when the Fantastic Four days, 93, 94, when we had Roger mm -hmm. Corman's movie sort of on the boil for a while, we went out and we we did a press tour. We sort of created our own momentum and found an audience. And so I enjoyed that. I don't do a lot of it. I don't do a lot of like convention appearances. But this opportunity came up really quickly to come to New York. And my producer, fabulous Betsy Schuller, who works on 48 Hours these days, she she's really helping me. He's in New York. And my friend Richard Johnson, who writes for the Daily News, wrote an article. And so I was able to go up and make the most of a couple of days, stay in downtown. And I'm working with this group called Reader's Magnet, and they actually created wonderful social media posts. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I hope to continue a relationship with them. Excellent. Yeah, I've heard I've heard quite a bit about Reader's Magnet as well. It's yeah, that I would love the opportunity to work with them in the in the future as well. So yeah, that's that sounds great. And it looked like it was it was a really good atmosphere too. It looked like there were it was lovely. A lot of different know. indie authors and yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, it's it's it was you know it's New York City, so I mean, you to, to, the ability to pull anything off is is a tip of the cap. But oh, it yeah. was a it was a nice venue, a little pop up shop called On the Fringe that lends itself. To, you know, to various different functions. They filled the place. They had a bunch of books and Betsy came down and spent the day there with me. And, you know, there were, it was really interesting. It was almost like being in like writer's church or like, it was just, you sort of just got into a vibe and you listened to people tell their stories. And yeah. my gosh, I thought, wow, I bet you this doesn't happen much unless it's court ordered, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Hi, there's, I'm, there's Alex. A... I'm an I'm Alex. I'm, I'm an author. Hi, Alex. Hi, yeah, Alex. My, my dad was an author, and you know, I just I just always thought I needed to be an author, and it was really hard, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. That's that's something I am definitely no stranger to. I've done my share of different uh, different conventions, different conferences, and everything, and I always feel like I always feel like I need to stand up no matter what. I feel like my if I sit, my energy just kind of drops whenever I'm trying to be in that selling mode where I just yeah. have you know, like copies of my, of my book. I'm just like, you know. I know you don't know me, you know, so please, you know, let yeah. me go ahead and tell you a little bit about it. Let me go ahead and, yeah. you know, share some about that. So it's, it's quite, it's quite the thing. It's quite the events. And uh, some of those, some of those events like PenCon that I've been to over here in St. Louis, it's like it's the stock exchange for, for, mm. for readers. They come running in, they're leaving with wagons filled with books. So wow. it's, it's really inspiring to see that sort of thing. It's just like, I got to keep, I got to get more books out. So I Good. so that they can they get more of they get more of what's going on over here. So how many um, have you written? How many books have, have you written? So far, so far I've written if you count the five part serial as their own individual stories, and then parts one and two of my young adult sci fi trilogy, it's been seven so far. Well, wow, good. Um, wow, great. Um, yep. 
and things are, well, things I've, are kind I've just of... written one. I've just written one. Yeah. It took me four, 40 years to research the material, but about two, <laughs> uh, yeah, about two well, and a half years so, come out, you know? Yeah. Just so hap- just so happens that, you know, that the, the, the trilogy that the young adult sci-fi trilogy for me, like that's a, that the character was created back in 1992. So I'm, I'm on the 30 year anniversary of that right there now. You go. So it's, Yep. And I just I just actually adapted it into an audio drama that's going to be performed on Clubhouse. So, um, oh, nice. Um, yeah. It's a, Multi, it's, multicast. You're going to record it live in a, in a big room and stuff. Yeah. Multicast. It's going to be Good. on they're going to I think they're going to set it up on Zoom so that like everyone oh, okay. uh, gets to record from their from their respective places. Yeah. And, Good luck. Uh, Good luck. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Sound effects, musical score, like the whole thing is just like. It's mind blowing. I've I've never had that happen before. So something yeah. like that. It's it's pretty special. So, but you've gotten a lot of really special special experience as well. So one of the things that I love to talk about here on the show is something that I like to call the lightning bolt moment, and that's that moment where you experience something or meet someone or see something, and just kind of makes you say to yourself, "That's what I want to do. That's the kind of life I want to live. That's who mm-hmm. I want to be." So what was it with you that got you into acting in the first place? Well, it's a very interesting lightning bolt moment. I think there's two forms of lightning bolt moments for me. One is the idealized one and one is the sort of earth-based, the sort of, you know, the uh, you know, fire and ice is is the phrase of the day or you know, in the clouds and on the ground. And like so many people, I came of age who came of age in the in the 70s when I was sort of middle school 12, 13, 14. It was it was this wonderful auteur films, you know, um, that culminated really at the, with, the, with The Godfather. But it was just a wonderful yeah. era of filmmaking in Hollywood. The Sting, <laughs> Butch Cassidy, and then... Uh, and Clyde, then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and Warren, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then in 76, when Star Wars came out, I think I'm right, I think it was 76. I w- am I, was it 77? Right, okay. I was, what, I was 18 years old. And I... Mm-hmm. I just, I knew I wanted to fly jets in space. It was really weird. And within a couple of years, I was auditioning for a contract player at Universal Studios who were producing Battlestar Galactica. And they were hiring boys to fly jets in space. They figured it was going to run for a long time. So I got in on that wave. And so there's oh, the ideal, great. there's the idealized moment. You know, it, it gets me mm-hmm. in. It's not like I say, I'm going to go to drama school and pay my dues. And I I just, you know, I kind of got what I wanted. And then the reality of it was, and this is kind of a, it's happened to me twice in the 40 years. And the parallel is it's, you know, you look at it on screen and like everybody, you see the end product. Oh, I'm flying jets in space. But the reality, George, is I was sitting on an Apple box in front of a green screen with a one size (laughs) fits all helmet the size of a lampshade and the direction was Alex don't move your head too much you know <laughs> you know That's so great. yeah and and uh, that is the idealized moment and then the sort of the reality moment came when I started to get well and uh, I, I when I got the part of an Olympic runner when I was in England and it was for an American miniseries called the first Olympics and I was hired to recreate the American team of of Harvard and Princeton boys, 14 of which we had David Caruso, Hunt Block, Jason Connery, Matt Frewer, all these nutty guys. Wow. And this was yeah. in the Panathenaic Stadium in yeah. Athens, running on those very same, 
you know, a track. And yeah. that, that sort of elicited what's continued is a lifelong joy of the research that I get to do when parts like that come across. I mean, it's one thing if they're based on real people, that's fine. We're not really there to interpret. But when you're part of an event like the first Olympics or yeah. when I, when I, I was in ironclads or the monitor and the Merrimack, you know, when you're part of an event, mm-hmm. then you can kind of take yourself away from it and just learn mm-hmm. what it is. And then you can reinsert yeah. yourself in that, in that way, which is great for an actor. And so, you know, when I started to get those moments and then, you know, look, the bottom mm-hmm. line in reality, when you're an actor is when you start to get work, you're thinking, okay, this is going to be all right. If you don't get work, yeah. Then, then you have to decide, are you going to delude yourself is forever or are you going to fall back on your college degree and become a substitute teacher? And I never, mm. you know, I dropped out of college early. So I think I strapped myself to the mast of, of survival in this business. Just kind of, you know, just going for it, really. Just yeah, that's that's terrific. Yes. And and then as you were as you were going through, like you were keeping yourself, you, you were, you know, like keeping yourself busy throughout, you know, like both film and television, correct? You know, like as you were, as you were going through like the 1980s, correct? Yeah. You know, 80s was a kind of a, like I refer to it in the book. I've separated the book. You like this into a five act sort of structure. And, Mm -hmm. and then in the, and there's like 44 episodes instead of making them chapters, I just, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just sort of naturally started calling them episodes and episodes into seasons. And so there's five seasons. Of course, the first season, First season's called Star Wars, and you know that's that's the sort of you know the the beginning of everything. And then second season is what I call the gathering. Is when you know when stuff starts to happen. It's like in the beginning of a you know like a Queen, a good Queen song or Led Zeppelin song. There's a mm-hmm. there's an opening, and then it sort of gathers, you know. And yeah. I found that my the first season, Star Wars, was the guy. I got the book open now because it's talking out of my hat. Here we go. First season's Gathering, Star Wars. The mm-hmm. second season is called Quickening, when things sort of come together, the plot thickens. And that was my early life as an actor in England in the 80s, like you talk about. And that yeah. was, yes, I was very much a part of projects that were filming, you see, in 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 Europe. And I could play an mm-hmm. American. And so I got I got some lead roles and I got in. The Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, infamous comedy called Ishtar with oh, wonderful yeah. people. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I had these one great experiences. And this was um, right up until sort of 1980 referenced Phantom of the Opera, which I think we did in yes. 87, maybe 88. And that was like six months before the wall fell in Hungary. Wow. So my quickening, my gathering years, my quickening years were... In England, and then season three, uh, we haven't quite got there yet. I called Heat because that's when I sort of, you know, started to get some really nice jobs in America. So getting mm-hmm. uh, getting my career started in England gave me that 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 opportunity to, you know, with less pressure to 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 act to work and not have to really worry too much how it was going to come out. It was a smaller market. You know what I mean? It was a good training ground for me, self-imposed. Yeah. Right. And, I, and then, I found myself playing Americans in England a lot. Right. And, and also, and, you know, going back to Phantom of the Opera, which, you know, like I, 
stand by that 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 one you know very very much i was always you know like really interested in it when i saw the when i saw the ads and everything i still to this day can't even fathom why people would would think that that just because it's it's saying the fan of the opera that means it has to be the michael crawford musical which this definitely was not but it also has one of the finest scores i you know like i really grabbed onto from the eight yeah. by, uh, by misha siegel i think that was just yes. a, a really wonderful wonderful score and i was so glad a few years ago when i was finally able to get the cd and i immediately oh, put it right on my on my player because i thought it was I, I think it's just magnificent but the um, oh it's wonderful that but you I was, say that yeah and just, you know, just overall, like I was really taken by this movie and I was really and I understood why it didn't connect in, in the at the box office. Yeah. I was like, I get I get what they're I get what they're doing. I love it. But I know that you know, like the masses would turn away from it because of it really goes for that Hammer film quality. To it. Yeah, almost like yeah. Yeah. almost to like a Herschel Gordon Lewis kind of level to it. It was, but at the same time, I was really, really taken by it, and I, I was, you know, a huge fan of everyone who was involved with it. So, so I, so this gives me the chance to say thank you for being a part of that, because, because you know, that's something that I, it's, it's a movie that I hold on to very, very well, and I'm glad that it finally came out on Blu-ray through Shout Select, and I was able to yes. get my copy of it. Yeah. So Shout, yeah. <clears throat> You know, two things really come to mind to, about that. First of all, it was it was one of the episodes that I really enjoyed revisiting because mm -hmm. it was three. It was uh, winter turns to spring in Hungary, and just in and it was just beautiful traveling down to the Ma Film Studios and working in the Kecskemét Opera House. And uh, mm -hmm. Budapest has is 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 old and new. It's where the Holy Roman Empire ended and the Byzantine Empire sort of began. And it was separated into two cities, Old Buddha and Pest. And it was really where the Iron Curtain started. And there was a lot of sort of living history there. And it was beginning to come together in terms of the wall fell. But it was always a great sort of black market area. You could It, it, it was very yeah. westernized. And they just yeah. happened to have excellent technicians for and film the hungarians and just you know like the czechs and so many wonderful films in the 80s were made uh, in 90s uh, amadeus for instance in czechoslovakia yeah that these yeah. these guys these guys were great to work with and so it had that big picture feel especially mm -hmm. on the sets which were just beautifully constructed for victorian era england and then of course we had uh, the wonderful english actor bill nye at his rakish best he had yet to 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 really hit his career stride. And so in, in my book, there's lovely stories that says, I only wish I would have seen more of Hungary during the day on our days off because Bill had us in these dank sort of <laughs> drinking parlors most of the time. <laughs> like, you know, most English actors, you know, they say, you know, you're drunk. Say, well, of course I'm drunk. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on. It's, uh, and so when I'm, I'm, I don't mean to slander Bill. And so hopefully he understands. But, you know, mm -hmm. such great talent was involved in that film. And then, of course, yeah. the hammer aspect, as we call it, hoisted by their own petard in a way, because, you know, it was Menachem Golan and, um, mm -hmm. you know, he, Good old he was only, films. Yep. you know, yeah, they were only welcomed so far. And 
And mm-hmm. Phantom of the Opera being a public domain title, you know, in a any any hired Robert made a horror version of Phantom of the Opera, which is, you know, it's just a beautifully gothic love story of a horror film, of a horror story anyway. Yeah. But, you know, it's one of those things. It gets better with age. You look at mm-hmm. it and it was a beautiful MGM print. And there's actually um pretty healthy fan base. They've been speaking to my promoter, Scott Ray, who does the appearance bookings about doing a Phantom of the Opera convention in the springtime in New Jersey. And, oh, no uh, kidding. Yeah, yeah. They're talking about a lady named Tammy Tucky runs it, and they're talking about showing the film. Somebody has a print of the movie or something. And, it, wow. you know, it, if if Robert goes, then, then, then we go, and it's worth it, and it, yeah. it'll be a lot of fun. But, you yeah. know, so much of... So much of the topsy-turvy world these days, we look back and the 80s are looking pretty good, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's funny, before you had mentioned that one of the one of the actors you were working with at the beginning was Jason Connery. Yeah. With uh, the first Olympics, because it was around the same time that you got to play a young Sean Connery in uh, yeah. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. What was uh, yeah. what was that experience like, getting to, getting to well, be a part you know, of that whole legacy? Yeah, that's the thing where... You know, it was it was strange because an agent friend recommended me to Mike Fenton, the casting director. They were looking mm-hmm. for someone to play a young Sean Connery, and this is Hollywood. And yeah. Marion Marion Rosenberg, the agent friend, she wasn't my agent. She said to Fenton, "What about Alex Hyde White?" Because she knew me. I think she represented my father-in-law Roy at the time. And mm-hmm. Mike said, "Okay, sure." And I go on in. And I auditioned. I read the scene. I read the read the, read the line. Junior, count to twenty in Greek. And they, oh, okay, great. And they sent it off to Stephen. And like a week later, they said, "Hey, they want you to go back in to see Mike Fenton for Indiana Jones. They like you for it." And I go, "Okay, great." So I went back to Universal, saw Mike, and I go in and sit down. I said, "No, Alex, don't sit." Actually, wait a minute. And turn around. They wanted me to audition it with my back to the camera. Mm. And because right, yeah. Stephen knew, and, and I remember Mike says he wants to see a jib. So I did the same thing. And mm-hmm. people say to me, wait a minute, that's your voice and, and your hand. And it's like, Junior, count to 20, my finger comes up. And, you know, when we did that mm-hmm. in the in, on the day up in Alamosa, you know, it's a Spielberg moment. So, George, the star yeah. of the shot is not, I mean, we did River Phoenix's God Bless River. We did his coverage mm-hmm. earlier in the day because he's on a track and he's running through into the house. Dad, 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 junior, you know, that kind of thing. By the time they right. turned it on me, it was like 545 on an Alamosa, Colorado, late spring day or early summer day. And Stephen mm-hmm. ended up saying, OK, boys, we got about three minutes. Otherwise, we're back here same time tomorrow because of the star of the shot was the center of our solar system, the sun, 93 million miles away, resting on the horizon, wasn't it? And there oh. is a finite window of time yeah. to do that. So all of a mm-hmm. sudden, I realized why they need somebody proper who, who's auditioned, who can do this. Because all of a sudden, you got Freddie Francis, you got Steven, you got everybody mm-hmm. getting the last shot and roll camera. And we got about 90 seconds to do it. And so in the rehearsal, sure you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. In the rehearsal, yeah. I go junior and I just put my hand up and pointed to the window and, and Stephen goes, great, Alex, do that. Lock in on that. Okay, here we go. Boom. And, you know, 
they gave me like sixth billing in that film simply Mm -hmm. and and, and my face wasn't even in it. So, (laughs) you know, it was the beginning of a really trusting relationship with Stephen, which, you know, in our business is impossible to value. It's it's almost impossible to experience. And then when he, you know, he, he used me again later and catch me if you can. And then a few, 10 years ago or so in Tintin. And, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the call for the fourth one. And I just hope it's six weeks on something. But still, I've got the yeah. wonderful stories. And that was kind of, that was, the, that was part of the impetus for me starting to write these things down. Because, you know, they were three, three separate one-day jobs, even though they're like three or four-day jobs because of travel. One day on mm-hmm. camera with Steven Spielberg. And it was River Phoenix. And then it was... Chris Walken and and Leonardo DiCaprio. And, mm-hmm. you know, then it was Jamie Bell and Daniel Craig and the Thompson twins, Nick Frost and Simon, Simon, Simon Pegg. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, wonderful talent. But Stephen gave me these great experiences and I knew I had to write them down because otherwise, in a sense, there's no sense in living them unless unless you go to spread the word they're so wonderful they're majestic peaks in the life of a mountain climber i say this about my book in the mount, life mm-hmm. of a mountain climber you would celebrate the peaks and you would sort of in the same way celebrate the valleys but the mm-hmm. story would be in the ascent and the descent the story would be in the climbing and the preparation and that you know a 40 years of living resulted yeah. in thankfully 125 credits or whatnot and i probably talk about 30 or 40 of them in my book <laughs> And I'm and I'm very I'm very glad you do too because all of these stories are just you know they're each one is inspiring in their own way because each one of them is just like so many of us that are out there is just like if I can just have one of those just one of those moments just kind of like just kind of grab on but then all of a sudden like that moment just kind of lends itself to creating another moment and all of a sudden you're reaching for that and then all of a sudden something else comes up and you're reaching for that and it's preparing you along the way as you do it. So I think that having these stories out there is re- is really something is really something to treasure and I really believe that that a lot of people would benefit from hearing these stories or reading them however they choose to absorb them and one particular story since this is this is not the first this is not the only podcast that I do I also have a sister podcast that I started back in November 2021 called From Duck Till Dark Outside the Marvel Studios and that is a show that celebrates all of the Marvel movies that are not part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because without mm-hmm. them you don't have the the MCU to get to get us to where we are right now you were you know in on the ground floor of of a of a very seminal film and a very seminal process that wound up obviously you know like not not getting to the big screen but the story itself actually wound up you know kind of creating its own its own legacy in itself mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. would be the 1994 fantastic four mm-hmm. um now you know like i've i watched and you know immediately bought the documentary doomed and to get like all the, as much detail as I could about what was happening, how everything started, how everything eventually went the way it mm-hmm. did. They did and a good job with that. Yeah, they did. Yeah. So I was, I was really taken by, by the fact that, you know, that everyone that was involved was real. you know, like no one was in this for just a paycheck. I appreciated that. You know, like it was, Everyone was in the, you know, uh, was in, was in on this because they understood 
what was in front of them, the sort of task that was there. So what was it like being a part of that? You know, like as, as things were going, as you got first involved and as things eventually went the way it did. Yeah. Well, this is really before I started to, um, have a cup of coffee in the big leagues. What I mean is small parts in like, you know, catch me. And I'd done Indiana Jones. And so I'd done a couple of larger roles in films, but they were Roger Corman movies. There was Concord New Horizons was his production company. And Roger Corman was known in Hollywood of getting popular genres and then making the low budget version, rather like Menachem had done with Phantom. And I'd done a couple of them. And So I'd earned my stripes and then Fantastic Four came through the conventional casting channels and it was considered a good get. I mean, you know, the fact that it was a Roger Corman film uh, wasn't as limiting as it would have been if it was another title because it was a co-production. And at the time, the only other uh, film that was kicking tires was James Cameron wanted to do a version of Spider-Man, but it kept on being pushed because... They were saying, look, the special effects can't manage it. It's just we're not there yet. And this was, what, Mm -hmm. 93, I think. And they figured with Fantastic Four that they could do a lower budget version because it's it's an origin story. It didn't need to be that sort of fantastic, mind the pun. It could be it could be grounded in a sort of, you know, a psychology, a human story which is probably the best yeah. way to, to do a, 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 show, a story that has four co-leads. So, you know, it, yeah. was, it was treated by everyone as a real deal. And we were all at our careers where it was a break. And heck, we beat out other mm-hmm. actors. I mean, if it hadn't been me, it would have been Tim Daly or Gary Cole and, or Mark Ruffalo was mm-hmm. up for a part, I think. And I don't know, he probably was 11 at the time, but you know how the stories go. Who the hell knows? But, oh, yeah. yeah. you know, we did it. And... I'd been around Rogers enough, so I had a bit of seniority. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm playing Reed Richards, and I was like the team captain, and it was really terrific. Yeah. And and so, the whole sort of subplot of it, we have to make this film so that Bernd Eichinger can hold on to the rights of Marvel. It really didn't have anything to do with us. I just, uh, right. you know, why? I remember saying why. You know, why occupy ourselves with something that, uh, you know, we have no idea. And even if it does, it's nothing Mm -hmm. to do with us. We're we're still here. Film is film. Let's go and do something. And then it came out Mm -hmm. in such a way that Roger was hedging his bets. Roger said, well, you know, I mean, this film might be releasable. And so everybody ended up using the film as a sort of liar's poker. And and we mm-hmm. never really finished it until until after it had been shelved, and then the director was sort of able to finish it as much as he could, and mm-hmm. it took its place on the shelf as a very rare occurrence in Hollywood, as a completed film that was bought mm-hmm. out, that the negative was bought yeah. by Fox, and so what mm-hmm. a story, what a story that was, and yeah. I was already on the road. We were out looking for an audience. Like I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a bit now with, with the book tour. We were on the road. We were visiting comic book stores, going to comic conventions, showing the trailer. Roger would give us the trailer mm-hmm. in stills. And, but you know, right yeah. up until contractually when Fox said, great, okay, cease and desist, boom. So we're done. But that right. doesn't mean we can stop telling the story. And the story just kept mm-hmm. getting bigger and bigger, George. And, it, you know, nobody cared until about... 15 years later, when all of a sudden Chris Columbus and Fox come out with the big, fantastic, big version, Fantastic Four, and people go, huh? Wait a minute. Okay. That's it? <laughs> I mean, 
that's a hundred and twenty million dollar lousy movie. What about the 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 one million dollar <laughs> lousy movie that was supposed to be lousy? Go back and look at that. Suddenly we're not so bad anymore, mm-hmm. you know? That's that's one thing that a lot of that uh, a lot of my friends really have said. The nineteen ninety four Fantastic Four has more heart in it than any other iteration of of these characters. And that's something I definitely agree with. You know, you can tell that, you know, everyone was the way that they were able to work in the the costumes themselves, saying that Susan made those costumes. And then, you know, and yes, it just feels like with like a, you know, a little bit of tweaking here and there, it's like if there's any chance for like a special edition or anything like that, where some, some effects can be finished or, I mean, Anything. Yeah, then we'll be seventy. We'll be seventy years old, and we'll go to the. We'll go to the premiere. Grauman's. We'll be seventy years old, and you know, the chemistry of the film was good. Rebecca and Jay and Joseph as the villain, and Michael Bailey Smith and Carl in the suit. The chemistry was great, and you know, it's like sometimes you go to summer camp. I mean, Betsy knows she used to go to summer camp, or like in. Maisel, you go to summer camp in the Catskills and all of a sudden, my God, you put on a good show. It was almost like that, mm-hmm. you know, it was it, it had that. Yeah. You know, Roger Corman gave so many people a chance to either make film or score movies or edit movies or direct movies or in my instance, mm-hmm. act in movies. And he would just give give it to you. He wouldn't be standing over you, not even the director. It's very self-directed. And so it gave me an awful lot of of confidence moving forward. And. I don't know if the Fantastic Four would have been, it, I don't think it would have been as valuable to me sort of developmentally had it had a conventional release Released. and un- underperformed yeah. and, you know, all of that nonsense. It's amazing that the fan base for the film just seems to get more and more friendly through mm-hmm. the years, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And since you were talking about how around that time you were, you had, you had done like a lot of, a lot of, you know, smaller roles, but then every now and then like an occasional bigger role. And one of those occasional bigger roles, from my understanding, happened a few years before that. And that was in Pretty Woman. And you have Richard Gere, you know, completing his full on comeback. You have Julia Roberts building about to become something huge a really great cast of Gary Marshall working with it. What was the experience being a part of that movie? It was just touched with a bit of magic. When people refer to Tinseltown or Stardust or, you know, the magic of Hollywood, I think what they're referring to is what's captured on film. And sometimes when it's captured on film and has this exceptional, unique quality it doesn't need a lot of extra, you know? It doesn't need a lot of, certainly in a film like Pretty Woman, it doesn't need any special effects. It doesn't need much enhancement. It didn't need much voiceover. It didn't need need any additional footage cutting away because the story didn't work. It was centered very much in the age-old, you know, Leda and the Swan, Pygmalion, My Fair Lady tale. Mm-hmm. And it was about Hollywood Boulevard prostitution for crying out loud, you know. Yeah. So, so the the success of that film is very, very simple. In a mm-hmm. B movie way, the Fantastic Four shares it. The chemistry, the chemistry between yeah. the the two, like you quite rightly say, Richard was full on. It was his comeback vehicle, and it was mm-hmm. the discovery vehicle for Julia. 
And yeah. I think the wisest thing, and I'm not so sure that Disney or major studios could do this these days. The wisest thing they did was they let Gary Marshall do the film without much oversight. They didn't feel it really? was a huge, huge investment. It was like a $20 million film. I don't remember executives being around. I mean, you know, they had a wonderful producer. The late Laura Ziskin was, it was a really mm-hmm. good dynamic producer. Yeah. She and Steve, Steve Ruther, who came from a group called Vestron, which were low budget films. Look, you know, you put film mm-hmm. in a camera, you turn on the lights or you, you position the camera so that you don't get too much interference or backlight. And, you know, if there's a polo pony and a fella bouncing in, you know, you do your scene and there's a girl in a beautiful dress that's going to be in the Smithsonian and you got Gary yelling action and cut. You know, the only variable is what's going to be captured. Yeah. And it was a, it was a happy, it was a happy crew. And it was a, mm-hmm. it was, a, it was, it was a romantic story, but it had an edge, you know, originally yeah. it was, it was, it was much darker in the beginning. I never read mm-hmm. the original script, but it was, you know, you look back on that and there, you don't need nostalgia. I mean, you can forgive the, uh, the high shoulder pads and the and and the huge hair of the late eighties, early nineties, you know. Yeah. And then of course, then of course, the title, a change of three thousand, which was the week's work, or the four day, mm-hmm. four day, the pay for the four or five day work. Yeah. And when they when they came across what was it, Van Halen, who did the cover of Pretty Woman? Oh, they did. The song? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, that's, yeah, the, and then that was the, um, and then yeah, Roy Orbison the, did the did the redo. Yeah, when it was the other way around, Roy Orbison did the original. Well, well, yeah, but I mean, like Roy, I think like re-recorded it for the for the soundtrack, right, right, and then, yeah. right, yes, it's Roy Orbison in the movie, but I think wasn't there a Van yeah. Halen version of the film as well? But there was, yeah, yeah, because uh, yeah. David Lee Roth was all about doing like doing uh, re- doing remakes yeah. of, of different yeah. things, so like yeah. they're doing Dancing in the Streets, they're doing You Really Got Me, and all that stuff. So yeah, and they probably did. They that. probably did the remake after the movie, though. I would think. No, I think that was one of the like the early albums, like when they were was just kind of like getting themselves started. Yeah, when yeah. they were trying to do like a mix of like originals and remakes to try to get their feet in the door. But what a but, title! Um, what a what a great title! You know, yeah, um, it, yeah. it just yeah, it just worked. Yeah, like that that movie. Like overall, like it really does. It really connects in a way that you know the people did not expect, and it's charming. Like, at the same There's time, a, it's like very charming. Yeah, the uh, very. Uh, a, a word that's really difficult to to define an old Greek word, sort of charisma, uh, or you know, or inspiros. Inspiros was a was uh, the, the the North African deserts famous for different winds, and when the inspiros wind would come, it would be in, the inspiration from a certain angle, you know. Or in Hamlet's phrase, when the wind blows southerly, I know a hawk from a handsaw. You know, elements. They're mm-hmm. just talking about elements, earth, sky. Yeah. It's it's psychology and. You know, acting in its simplest form is just is is listening and responding. And nobody creates that. I mean, the the, the author creates it. The director sets the scene. But those magical moments, whether it's a Roger Corman movie or a Gary Marshall movie or a Steven Spielberg movie, the magical moments for an actor are in between the cacophony that action um, ceases. It's, you know, set up, set up, set up, set up, action, dead quiet. Mm hmm. Until yeah. cut, and then you know the noise explodes again. It, in between action, <laughs> in between action and cut is where the 
where the magic lays. And just Pretty Woman, there's no way you're going to hope to get in a movie like that. And to, you know, to look back and say, hey, I was actually a part of it. Maybe I actually helped making it good. You know, they would have done fine without me, but they were they were worried about my kind of part. They, they you know, it, it was an important role for them. And mm-hmm. I met this lovely producer named Betsy Schuller, who who is a fine producer of uh, different television content in New York City. And we met on a look back of Pretty Woman that she produced about three years ago. And oh, no kidding. Yeah, she put together this, it was like on the Extra channel, I think one of the cable channels that does these things, and mm-hmm. uh, or Reels, Reels, I think it is. Mm-hmm. They do lookbacks, and so, I don't know, it's probably out there. But it was great, and that's where I got to learn more. I didn't know that Disney was really worried about how to cast my part. All I know is 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 how I got it, <laughs> and almost didn't get yep. it, and all that nonsense. <laughs> but that's in the book. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. great. That's you know, great. it's like it's like eating it's like eating a chocolate cake and not having to pay for the calories. <laughs> oh man, if only, <laughs> if only. I'm, I'm, you know, my my daughter's birthday is this weekend, so yeah, that's <laughs> that's definitely you know coming up. So, how old um, is she? She will be five. Nice. Yep. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, Good for you. Oh, uh, she's she's great. She is hilarious. She's got personality for days. Though so it's and um. Yeah. And just seems like Good. the more I'm, I'm able to like introduce her. She actually really loves coming in here in the studio and getting behind the mic. Uh, yeah. That's, that's, that's something, that's something fun that she likes to do. Just kind of like, just get behind here and start talking and send messages to, to her mom and grandma and, and yeah. start singing the theme song to Pete the cat, you know, just really, you know, just, just, it's, it's always, it's always a lot of fun. So, but when I'm back, cool. when I'm, you know, in here, like in the, in this, in the studio here, you know, like that I have in my office, I'm doing a lot of, you know, like I'm doing what I can, you know, like, which is only like a, a fraction of what you're doing in the world of audiobook. Can you tell us a little bit about getting involved in that, in that field? Yeah, it happened sort of by accident. I was taking an interest in sort of creating an, a, a, a VO voiceover profile in like 2011, 20 and 2012. And so I mm-hmm. went to a workshop and worked on characters and realized that, you know, the guys who do VO or animation, you know, they're already, the jobs go to those people already. And right. just just at the same time, the Audible was creating ACX, and which is a is a online marketplace for rights holders, for authors to meet audiobook narrators who call producers. And I came in right mm-hmm. on the ground level and I ended up entering a contest at a, at a, at a symposium called That's Voiceover, run by a couple of folks from New York, Rudy and, and Joan, Joan Bacon, Rudy and Rudy. Uh, Rudy Gaskins. Rudy yeah. Gaskins, yes. And yeah. First, yeah, I, that's, yeah, that's VO conference. And I won the Audible mm-hmm. new narrator. And I'm sitting in Pacific Design Center. And, and the winner of the, of the male narrator is, and there's an A, there's an X, and there's a hyphen. And I go, crap, that's me. And I don't know. I think the last <laughs> the last thing I'd won was like a punt passing kick contest in Palm Springs when I was like eleven or twelve. And so, whoa, it took me a, a while. And before you know it, they started giving me titles, and then producers picked me up. And you know, I've always wanted to produce. I produced two movies in forty years, and they've been terrific, but mm-hmm. a lot of fun. But people, people, I was doing audios books said, "Hey, you know, we got a lot of." back titles and I go, well, I got a lot of actor friends and I, I'm in Hollywood. Let me start producing. Nice. And, yeah. you know, I've produced 500 audiobooks in the last 10 or 11 years. So I think I'm going to stick with that. Wow. Punch audio, 
Punchoni was created, but it was a happy accident. <clears throat> if I hadn't yeah. have been, a, if I haven't have been like a sucker as an actor, I'm going to drive to Burbank and do a VO workshop with a very good teacher, which resulted in the going to the to the, the VO conference, and then that resulted in a, a, a in an entry in the contest, and that resulted in a nice demo which won it, and then. It blossomed into an audiobook narration and producing career. So unexpected life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. Absolutely. And yeah, it's that's that's absolutely remarkable. And yeah, I am just like I said before, you know, like I am just blown away by the fact that, you know, like I have known you, you know, like known of you, you know, as as a character actor, somebody, you know, something that I wanted to get involved in as as I was growing up, I studied theater in, in college and I wanted to, you know, go in that direction. And then all of a sudden, you know, like here I am doing audiobooks, you know, after knowing about, you know, like everything that you've done. And it just feels like at some point, you know, like I, I have to meet this man. <laughs> and it just seemed like this, this was go- that this had to happen. And so, so say there's someone else kind of in, in my shoes, only like much more like way, like, about to get started they love they love what they do they but they're not sure exactly what it is that they really need to do as like the first step considering Mm -hmm. like everything that's at our disposal now everything that that you know that we have in terms of in terms of equipment in terms of software in terms of everything that's at our disposal what do you recommend for those those that want to kind of get that first step in but aren't really sure what that first step is Right. Well, there's two sides. There's left brain, there's right brain. There's analytical, and then there's creative. The, the technical, the analytical is easy. You can go to Guitar Center and talk to Jeremy for 30 minutes and get and get kitted up. The, the right brain, the creative side is where I really come from. If somebody says, like, if I'm, if I'm at a, a convention or talking and somebody says, hey, I'm, I want to get started as an audiobook narrator, how do I do that? I go, well, do you, do you, what do I need to do? I go, well, you already have done it. You've expressed a desire and you have a passion for it. And so what you need to do is quickly find out is can you read and speak at the same time in a controlled environment without making a lot of mistakes or background noises or how is your attention? How is your focus? How is your ability to, to execute the task at hand? which on the face of it, just like acting in general, isn't very hard if you are equipped with the technique to do it and, you know, if you're able to do it. Now, that doesn't mean that if you have an accent or a little quirk in your speech, that's fine. You know, people come in all shapes and sizes. The great thing about the group that that I started that has now sort of grown into a collaborative is called Punch Audio, and we're very easy to find, is we have we have entry level positions for narrators and engineers just to get started and it's something that I was able to do as an actor in England a little bit was my training ground but I missed I missed out somebody asked me yesterday I think on a on an interview is if I had to do anything over again what would it be and I said you know I would have taken like a gap year or two and sort of just joined a theater company or gone and done summer stock and just, you know, sort of the, what is it? The, the roar of the crowd and the smell of the grease paint. God knows it might've turned me off in the business forever. <laughs> but you know, what I'm yeah. saying, what I'm saying is during those formative years, like after school or high school or college or, you know, before, after the Navy or whatever you're doing before, 
you're before you kind of settle on a career, you want to give something a shot. That's the time to mm-hmm. do it. And what we do, we used yeah. to do these, um, we used to do these uh, demo days at Punch Audio. Now you come in and you come into the Studio City office and you, you get behind the booth and you're sitting there with mm-hmm. others and, you know, you come out with a demo and you'd be surprised sometimes how, how good it was. So yeah. I think that, I think that if I would say to somebody is find a novel that you like. It can be anything. It can be Twilight. It can be, you know, it can be, it can be a kill a mockingbird, anything that you like. Mm-hmm. Find a couple of pages and just read it. And then find a nonfiction book. It could be Hemingway's Movable Feast from Paris in the 20s, which is something that I've always loved to read because it's very challenging, but it's just extremely well constructed. Or, you know, if you have a, a you know, the Stan Lee story, whatever you like, mm-hmm. get a piece, get, get a piece of fiction and piece of nonfiction together. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, find somebody with a studio and go in and mm-hmm. read it. And see how it yeah. is. See how it. You know, it's self-directed, George. You know that. Mm-hmm. Very much, very much. And where can my listeners find you on social media? Well, you know, I've got a, a hide white. What is it? Instagram, and I've got a Facebook, and my website, alexhidewhite.com, keeps keeps current. God, God bless Ruth. She runs it nicely for me. Um, Got some nice clips, and and one of my engineers from the audiobook company from Punch Audio put together the clips from Nope, my partisan Englishman in Nope, with the part of the baby doctor in Dahmer, which I played that was just on recently. And so, boy, oh, boy, the two sides of Alex, English and American, (laughs) one friendly and one kind of scary. Yeah, so there we go. go. (laughs) I'm around. Easy easy to find. There's very few Alex Hyde Whites, and if you find another one, wish him luck because he'll probably need it. (laughs) <laughs> well, it is just an absolute pleasure to have this Alex Hyde White here on, uh-huh. on this show to sit down with you, to be able to hear these amazing stories. And just what Alex said, the magic is right between action and cut. So I hope that all of you are pursuing your own passions and finding that same sort of magic that truly does exist between action and cut because between action and cut is when we are doing what we are here to do. We are here doing what we love. We are here to do what drives us. We are here to do what inspires us, what motivates us. And that is what I have always made a point to celebrate on here. And I hope that all of you are able to take these stories and also get them yourself by getting in the volume, whether it is through Kindle, paperback, audiobook, whatever the case, listen to these stories, get these stories in your head, and then, as Campbell has always said, follow your bliss. And so for Alex Hyde White, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward, and I will see you next week. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Excelsior Journeys. I hope it was both inspiring and entertaining. Special thanks to Zach Comtois for providing new music for the intro and outro. Please take a moment to leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe to your platform of choice by going to he'sgotit.com slash podcasts. While there, you can also fill out the application to be a guest, inquire about sponsorship opportunities, and click on the Buy Me a Coffee link if you wish to give your support to the show. All interaction is very much appreciated. If you have a question, 
comment, or suggestion for the show, please direct it to george at he'sgotit.com. <laughs>